Technology has freed us, but the structures that people still put in place in companies keep people in that jail. Um, and employee engagement is, is part of that problem. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 348. Today is Sunday the 10th of November 2019. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day for the listen. I also want to give a shout out and thanks to Caring B and Allegro12345 for putting in a review on iTunes. On to this week's interview, which is with Matt Phelan. Matt's an investor, advisor, and entrepreneur, having successfully co-founded and sold his 4Ps marketing agency. In 2014, he co-founded the Happiness Index, using technology and data to give employees and customers a voice to help transform organizations. In this podcast with Matt, in which he reveals a scoop, we discuss the importance and opportunities for business to explore happiness using data and insights. We look at how to measure happiness, how to view and garner employee engagement, and why companies ought to be employee first, a stimulating conversation on an important topic. Matt Phelan, you and I met in Beijing, of all places, thanks to our beautiful mutual friend, Ollie Barrett. And uh, as Ollie rightly said, we had a million things to connect over. So, Matt, in your own words, describe who you are. So, I have... um, So, yeah, firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, And also, again, thanks for Ollie for putting us in touch, because we've only known each other a couple of weeks, and I've learned so much already. Um, But, I mean, I have the biggest made-up job title of all time, which is the Head of Global Happiness, um, because I work at and co-founded a company called The Happiness Index, and we, my, my particular role is to help expand our operations around the world. But what comes of that um, is, the, is the cultural learning on happiness in different countries. So it's become a bit of an, it's, my work has become my obsession and something that I just enjoy doing and unpicking because we know a lot, but there's a lot more to learn than we already know, if that makes any sense whatsoever. It does. I want to get into how you got here, but just quickly, when, when you're doing global happiness, how many happinesses are there? Uh, you know, it's like, you're not, like you don't have to learn 250 languages, uh, presumably, but how many nuances do you think there are so far in your discovery around the globality of happiness? Yeah, it's oh, such a good question. Well, I think I'll, I'll give you one example, which is if we take if we take Huga, um, so which is the Danish word that isn't a direct translate translation of happiness. But the Huga is a is a Danish and Norwegian word from um, from when Denmark and Norway were one kingdom. But if you back, try and you mean back it, in happier days when they were together, <laughs> well, no, yeah, yeah, potentially, <laughs> we'll let them decide. But they have, a, they have another word called Arbeitsgleber, and it just, and, and anyone who's Danish who's listening will be laughing at my pronunciation now, but it means, it, it mean, if you dissect it, it means work and happiness, but it, it's not two words to them, it is one word. Um, so in their example, they, the Danes expect to, to have happiness in their work. It's not like a, oh, are you happy at work? It's an expectation. So every country we go to is just completely different. Um, but the but the good 
point on it is there's a lot of the, the, a lot of the really good research actually comes from Pixar. Um, because one of the beautiful things about Pixar is that it doesn't matter what country you're in, you can watch it on mute and you can understand what's going in, uh, going on, because they've really researched like the global emotions and happiness is is one of them, um, as as are things like loss and things like that. So it has its universal aspects to it, but as we are human beings, we like to adapt stuff on a local level as well. So it's well, been it's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, just need to take the sense of humor uh, yeah. as one starting point. So Matt. Tell us how you got to take this, take on this idea of the happiness index. Where, what was the path that led you to this? Um, so we stole. We st- it started. I always say that the happiness index started with theft and a lie, um, which is so we stole from Richard Branson the concept that your employee comes first, not your customer. Um, so that was the theft. We stole that. Um, but the lie came, I was scaling up my own digital marketing agency from about 2008. And what I realized is my best staff all lied to me. And not in a really bad way, just in a very English way, which would be how, let's, let's, let's take an imaginary client, so it's not a real one. So let's take Apple. Oh, how's the Apple? How, I would ask one of the team, how's the Apple account going? And they'd be going, oh, absolutely brilliant. Then two seconds later, I get a, get a call from Tim Cook saying, we're handing in, your, we're handing in the the contract we're not working with you anymore um and what i what i found um is that we were following a philosophy which we applied like a religion like we were the, we were obsessed with it we will make this the best place to work therefore the work will be brilliant and the customers will be happy and will make more money but my background is i'm a geek um and i just love data and i realized we came from this world, um, which you'll know from, from your world as well, Minter, which is that, do you remember that? Well, you wouldn't remember it because neither is old enough, <laughs> but the saying of 50% of our marketing works, we just don't know what 50%. Sure. Um, now, digital marketing started to pick away at that. Um, but what I started to realize, there wasn't much actually research into the cultural piece. So although we were um, applying this philosophy that employee first results in customer, we actually had no data on it or any methodology. So we start, we basically started to become, to look into how do we track that? And we, we, we designed a piece of technology, which was just an internal platform um, with two lines of code that was so simple. It just asked our employees and customers how happy they were. And we, then we just ran correlation analysis um, across it to see if there was a correlation. And that, and that's where our sort of journey started. And now we're just obsessed at looking at everything from the impact of CO2 levels on happiness through to to anything. Like I've just got off the phone where someone wants to, to look to look into the impact of um, chips or in America, you you call them fries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I was thinking you were going to be talking about microprocessors. Yeah, no, no, much, much more interested than microprocessors, chips. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, that was that was that was a starting point of it. All right. Well, so I, I just to unpack the notion of the lie. Your best yeah. employees were lying to you about the nature of the contract with Apple in this case. Yeah. Or the the way it was going. Or that's what I am interpreting. How did how did you then discover or understand that these were the best? employees and that they had to lie to you what what is it that made that revelation interesting to you so for me if we if we go really far back um my background didn't start with working humans it started working with animals 
so my so so my absolute background is my so my dad um is from brixton in south london which when he grew up was quite a rough area now it's like lots of areas being completely gentrified but his dream was to be a farmer and through lots of hard work that's what he got to be um, and anyone who knows about farming it's a very poor poor existence you don't make any money from it um but what that led me to do is so i just i just grew up working with animals so like delivering lambs working with cows all that kind of stuff and and when you work up and live grow up in an environment like that you have to learn to communicate especially if anyone's got a dog or a cat you learn to communicate it with non-verbal cues um and that's what i kind of realized when i started my own business that us as human beings and there's a cultural part in this of english people as well we are really bad at communicating with each other, even though we have arguably the most advanced techniques at doing it. And, and ironically, the more technology we get, sometimes we get worse at communicating with each other. So, no um, And it was just a, an observation of mine. So I don't say it to like call out any of our people, but I just realized that the way that we were collecting our information wasn't working for the outcome we wanted, which is ultimately we just want to make our customers happier. But the way that we were communi- communicating with each other internally wasn't working. So the geek in you just says, well, the problem is you just don't have enough data to make the right decisions. Because the data may have just been we needed to put more resource on it. Or um, we were we were just planning things in the wrong way. But unless uh, unless you start to collect and understand, you're not going to be able to improve it is, is the way that I look at things. Right. So interesting. So you had this agency, as I understand, it was called the Four P's Agency, something like that. Yeah, so, Four P's Marketing. Uh, right. So Cutler and all. Yeah. What I, I'm interested to hear about is that well, you made the success presumably based on this philosophy of employee first, customer customer last, um, and you then you did an earnout and you, and you followed through the end and now you started set, set up your your happiness index. Yeah. What I'm interested to hear from you and maybe it's putting you on the spot a little bit is to what extent will they the acquirer be able to pursue your philosophy because it really looks like a real mindset and yeah. and when you do mergers things like this can be perturbed and uh, interrupted. Yeah. So we, I mean, the first thing is when we were going through the M&A process of selling the business, there's a, for those that are listening that don't know the process, is a part of the process called due diligence, which is where they just check out the things that you've told them, are they true? <laughs> and part of that due diligence will be employee and customer. So we were quite a freak because we had, I think we had about three or four companies that were interested in buying us. But the, the fluke in our... Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, it's a nice place to be. Um, but... What we actually did is they they were like, we want to do due diligence on your employees and your customers just to make sure we understand it. So we just said, oh, we've got the data. Here's the files. Because we already had um, anonymized how our employees were feeling and how our customers were. So we were very upfront because we were scaling our customers on happiness from uh, one to ten. So we actually just said, look, this is how we are. We were probably we were always between seven and eight in terms of our averages. And we were upfront. We were like, we've got some that are ones and twos that are really unhappy. The majority, the the high, the most regular score was nine because averages do funny things to things. Medians. Um, yeah, but we were just um, we were just upfront with it. This is us because what was a bit unique and quirky about us is because we were all about real time advertising and marketing. When you came in our office, we actually had up live um, the real time of how our employees and customers were feeling. So you, you could be showing around a potential new customer 
and the the score might be up there as 8.1 and it might suddenly drop to 7.5 because a load of people have loaded in a one score and it's brought and it's brought it down so we were just always transparent and open about that um which is going back to the lie bit which is if someone's a one or a two i want to know i want to know about it so i can do something about it like a lot of people get get caught up in feedback and think about it's positive or negative i just think it's feedback it's how people are feeling but that can can sometimes be tricky for an employee so someone comes up to you hey matt you know i'm i'm feeling shit uh i'm on a one and i've been a one for two weeks and my customers are ones as well yeah Uh, how do you manage that without it being some kind of punishment kind of feeling well, it, ha- it has to, it all comes back to culture. So it depends what type of culture you've got. So I know Amazon have tried to implement an internal system similar to this, but it, and, and, and I don't know the case of it. So I'm just talking of stuff that I've read in external uh, sources is that it, the way they ended up using it was almost used in a way of bullying because there was peer to peer rating it and all that kind of stuff. But and again, I don't know the Amazon culture, but I only see what I see from the outside, which is Amazon, um, for those that don't know Amazon, their their thing is uh, customer first. <laughs> so they, their totem of that, so a totem is the thing that represents the value. When they have a board meeting, they leave an, a, an empty seat for the customer. So if, if, if Jeff was to join this call, Jeff Bezos, I would say, Jeff, where's the, not the empty seat, but where's the, where's the seat that represents the employee? Because... I see it as all a bit like, you know, like the Lion King when Mufasa explains the circle of life. I don't see these as separate things. I, th- I see them as all, all connected. So I, I think that sort of it comes back to your culture, which is we had a culture of, right, let's get down around the table. It's no one's fault, but let's fix it together. If you don't have that culture, yeah, you could be in that scenario that you outlined. So if you were now working with a company that says yeah great really want to measure I want to have happy employees I believe in employee first what kind of advice would you give to the executive in terms of trying to qualify the best ways of implementing it and and making it come to fruition yeah so the first internal question that I would ask someone to ask themselves and they don't need to reveal the answer to me you or your audience Winter which is do they actually believe in it or are they doing it because they read it in a book or they listen to this podcast? Because there's three groups of people. There's people that just do it as a philosophy. There's ones that will do it. They've got the data and there's ones that are just doing it because they think they need to do it. Um, and what I have, what, what I've realized is that if people don't believe in this, it won't work. So um, it's my first step is an internal question, which is just really ask yourself the question, do you actually believe in it or are you just doing it because you've read it's a good thing? Because when it comes to getting this to actually go through into your entire company, um, it won't um, it won't follow through to the way you want it to if you're just playing, pay, paying it lip service. Well, it does bring up this whole notion of self-declaration, because if you were to ask me, hey, hey Minter, how happy are you? Yeah, uh, I'm happy. You know, yeah. Or, or how how who's to know that my scale of happiness is the same as Matt's? Who's asking me? And if you're yep. going to ask me, I believe it. Oh yeah, yeah, yada yada yada. Yep. So th- this this gap between what we say and what we fundamentally believe. 
yep. is is a constant. You know, I say mm-hmm. I'm happy. I sometimes I like to say, well, I'm I I I'm happy because I smile. Yeah, that kind of way around, uh, yeah, which is a philosophy almost, but it it's yeah. not always true. Correct. Um. So what we run. So basically, so there's some humans again going back to how we are at communicating. We're very bad at self-scoring our own happiness. So. When we set up with clients, we set up in different ways. Some people like to self-score, some people don't. But at the same time people self-score themselves, uh, we run sentiment analysis um, to actually um, see the sentiment of what they're saying versus what they've said. Um, And it throws up fascinating things. I've actually asked one of our team to do a full report across the database because we've never done that before, just to see, just to see the average difference and stuff like that. But um, that's that's how we get around it, which is the sentiment analysis piece. And... The other piece you pointed out about smiling is something, and this is very cultural. Um, in Japan, a lot of people ask us to do, because um, we can, we can do facial recognition. Um, but again, I know this would be my my English take on it. I I always recommend against doing it because we all every. Like I met with someone this morning, and they um, they said to me that their that their son accused them of being the most unhappiest person in the world. Now, I know this guy, I've known and worked with this guy for a while. He used to work at, um, at the Telegraph, now works at Go Carlos, but he just has resting, serious face. He, it's just, that's what his face is. He just looks, you like, anytime you're meeting him, he looks, he doesn't actually look sad, he just looks deep in thought all the time. Furrowed so, down. Yeah, that's what he is. And then you've got all the other things like um, um, facial disfigurement, people that um, that have been scarred or whatever, that it's not for me it's not uh, i don't think it works and it creates this kind of weird culture of where you need to smile um as part of the as part of the brand and that kind of stuff and i think that there's another area of passion of mine is i call it mental fitness on purpose as opposed to mental health but that's a, a, even an, a, a thing for another day but i think it has a degradation on that because it's really it's really important that people can express their feelings well so uh, just thinking about on my trips to Japan, when they when they smile, oftentimes, especially the women, they will cover their mouth and smile because they don't want to see show their teeth or the inside of their mouth as they smile. They'll, it's sort of or a snicker, if you will, at that point. Yeah. So that that that's an example of a cultural uh, totally to, total thing. And then the other thing, though, just as I'm listening to you, Matt, is you know, uh, let's say my children have sometimes called me the the furrowed brow as well. And and what happens is, of course, as you get older, you're not there yet, but the 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 furrow becomes deeper. Yeah. And and the, so the crease, uh, the wrinkle, becomes a permanent feature. And it can look like I'm sort of a little bit angry or, or cross, and yeah, and uh, or in deep thought. And so I've I've wondered about that because in the end of the day, that is also the perception of somebody else. And yeah. we live in that mirrored row world where, when if you walk down the street and someone looks at you worriedly, well, that is something you need to take into consideration. And anyway, it yeah. will impact who you are and what you're feeling. Yeah. And I, I mean, I where I live in North London is um, is quite it's a it's a very Greek area, and one thing I've I've learned from um, a saying um, that they, that they use quite a lot is that when one when 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 someone's pointing at you, they often have, they often have they have three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. And I do think that of that kind of analysis, like if you're feeling in a bad mood, everyone that you look at 
you interpret them as being in a bad mood. Mm. If you're in a good mood, you think that they are. So it goes back to why that, for me, that just because the technology is there doesn't mean you should use it in that, in that way. So the AI technology, Google, uh, Microsoft, it's all there. Anyone can pick up and use it. I just don't think it's a good use um, f- for for what we do. The, there are other arguments for it, like um, like security at football stadiums and all that kind of stuff, um, which is a again, it's another another conversation for another day. Well, unless you're a Liverpool fan recently, um, yeah. yeah. Um, just want to get into some of the work that you've done now that you've launched this and it's live in many companies. You talked about the key first point, which is does the does the the prescriber believe uh, fundamentally in the the benefits of happiness that's how i understood it what are some of the other learnings that you've had and and maybe what are the the processes that make for successful implementation of trying to get more huga in your in your business well i think the one point that's really worth us drilling down into really quickly is is the drug of something that is globally known as employee engagement so when we first started about uh, talking about happiness we encountered what i call the employee engagement police um who would feel that when we talk about happiness that we're almost discrediting their whole career because the hr professionals that represent you or look after you in a company they've been brought up on academic research based on employee engagement now we there's about 22 global studies into um, happiness, which which form part of what we do. There was a great one out um, literally in the last two or three weeks um, that used uh, that did a, a, a test on productivity and um, and happiness on a BT call center um, by um, uh, Cambridge University, and it's just it's it's just come out. But the problem is, and and this is this is the thing is that academic research records a point in time um, on one particular company so you can take learnings from it but it doesn't necessarily represent what's going to happen in your company because you're working on um, on a live environment so one of the issues that i have seen is that uh, there was academic research done a lot of it on employee engagement but then people call, then people phone me and they say matt my employee engagement scores are really good but all my staff are leaving they're suffering burnout and we've got mental health issues. So there's that, oh, going back to marketing, there's that, um, uh, I think, is it Peter Drucker who says, um, if you can measure it, you can manage it, um, which is a great saying, but it's also part of the problem because what if you're measuring the wrong thing and managing the wrong thing? So I believe that employee engagement comes from the post-industrial period where for those that have read Homo Deus, which is a a really interesting book, it it makes the argument that human beings compare our brains to whatever the latest technology is. So if you take the example of letting off steam, that was a phrase that came when the steam engine was the most advanced piece of tech. And then if you go forward to like the 90s and early noughties, people would compare, compare the brain to like a computer. They'd be like, oh, God, I just can't download all this information or whatever. And now people are starting to compare the brain to AI um, and, and how AI works and how machine learning works. But the, the problem is a lot of that stuff to do with employee engagement comes from, the, from, from effectively factory-run businesses. But the way that technology is freed us in the way that 
me and you rarely think about the work we do from an office space, the fact that you're at home, I'm out and about and we're recording this. Technology has freed us, but the structures that people still put in place in companies keep people in that jail um, and employee engagement is is part of that problem. So we fir- when we first started to look at it, we thought, right, we're going to have to just we're going to have to be the terminators of employee engagement. But the the more we got into it, what we actually realised, there is a lot of merit in the old stuff. It just hasn't been updated. So what we found is, and it gets a bit Star Warsy, um, or or Buddhisty, if you want to call it that, if Buddhisty, if that's even a saying, but it's um, it's about balance. Because what we realised is that if you just focus on employee happiness. People actually like to be engaged at work. So it's actually a beautiful circle again, which is if you're engaged at work, you're happier. And if you're happier, you become more engaged. So what we realized is that a lot of um, people measure employee engagement, which is what the company wants. But they don't measure what the individual wants, which is employee happiness. And the answer is not to do one or the other. It's actually to do both um, and and look at how they interact with each other. So no, that was a long answer to yeah. the stuff that we're finding, but that's the biggest sort of summary point of, of the last six years. Brilliant. Let's just uh, dig in on happiness as a as a concept, because to measure it, you know, ha 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 ha, I'm happy. Yeah. There's this moment, as you said, you know, like a, it's a, a fleeting element of happiness. Yeah. How do you how do you understand happiness in the context where it must exist as an opposition to sadness. So yep. if you have no sadness, there is no happiness. Yeah. And to what extent difficulty, challenge, crying are abundantly necessary to create a stronger happiness? Yeah, and and that this I've got two answers which may sound like um, duality, but I'm going to give you them both anyway. <laughs> Which is, this is going to sound, the first answer is going to sound really weird, which is, you know, like the 10,000 steps thing about how in 10,000 steps, I don't know if you've seen that it's kind of, it's come out that it's not based on anything. There was, there's no actual research behind the, the fact that people should walk 10,000 steps a day. Um, but what it does do, basically it was marketing spin, is the fact that it just focuses people on doing more than they currently were. So first off, I think it's, People just looking into happiness is really important because it actually it, it goes to something that we spoke about over breakfast, which is an obsession of mine, which is empathy, which is the minute you start thinking about the people in your team's happiness, it creates a change in behavior in the way that you look at people that I think is really useful. So that's that's just one side of the coin. On the second side of it, you're absolutely right. There's a, an amazing book for anyone that's got ch- uh, children out there called The Truth Pixie. It's the first real book that's written for children um, to help them understand mental health issues. Um, and in it, it's by an author called Matt Haig, um, who says, without, without feeling down, you can't feel up. And it's the part of what makes us, what makes us um, human beings. So for those that, and again, I'm just geeking out, being happy all the time is, is from a from a psychiatry perspective, is as bad as being sad all the time. Like it, it, it is weird if you are happy ten out of ten all the time. That is not there's a there's a there's a medical issue there that you'd have that you would have to encounter. So, to to summarise what I'm trying to say is first point: the empathy that's created by thinking about other people's happiness is really important. And the second point is, and that's why I talk about feedback not necessarily being positive or negative. 
they are just emotions because we we have a head of neuroscience in our team and the question that one of the faqs that um it comes up in the sort of gender discussion which is we see a lot of people say things like oh my manager said i was too emotional um and it's it, there's no such thing as being too emotional um emotion is part of what is what, it, what makes us human that we all have these emotions it's what it's about is about how you display those emotions is, is what the person who's trying to give the feedback is trying to say like they, they may be saying that well maybe you punching me in the face might have been a bit too much of a um, an emotional response or whatever but the actual thing to say someone is too emotional is just it just uh, is a sentence as a as a piece of language doesn't make any sense whatsoever so I just think it's really important to, although we use scoring systems, to not think of like a 10 as good and a 1 as a bad. What is important is what we call insight, um, which is to take insight out of it to improve the company. So again, I know that's a long answer to your no. question, Minta. No, it's great. It's very, it's very sensible. Um, I really understand it. When you look at the data that you've now created and anonymized as it is, yeah, uh, I remember you told me that um, uh, the English uh, are much happier when it's raining outside. Light, light drizzle. Light drizzle. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, you know. So, what other types of data points ha- would you say you've co- you've come up with looking at a meta level with all the data that you've created around yeah. happiness in the workplace and this engagement I, story? I'll just go to the biggest, scariest one, which. It's a bit of an exclusive. This is an exclusive for your um, podcast, Thank which you. is, um, which we're not going to release the data yet, but I'll, we'll give your listeners a heads up. Is the impact of um, CO two levels on happiness, um, and we're we're tracking it at the moment. Um, and our early looks, our early look of it is that the 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 quality of the air um, that you breathe does impact your happiness. Now. It's an early look, um, and I'm just, and maybe we'll chat in a year's time when it comes out, and I may be wrong or whatever. But because we know the, um, because we know the results of this type of stuff could be very political and very um, explosive, whatever way you want to put it, we want to make sure that we get super, 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 super sure of our data before we start to look at it. But it, it, when you start looking at it, you happiness, you kind of think it's a bit fluffy. It's all about happy, happy, and all this kind of stuff, but weirdly the more and, and, and this may be because i've institutionalized myself and i'm obsessed with it the more you look into it the more you start thinking is this the only is this the only metric to the point that and again i was talking to my um my father-in-law and my mother-in-law and we we're talking about my children's education all that kind of stuff and they were talking about the schools they might go to blah 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 and that, and then they were talking about the res- academic results and i was like i generally don't care what results my kids get i just want them to be happy and they and 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 again, I'll I'll share this podcast with them, so it's not like a surprise if they hear it. But um, they were just shocked by that. Like that, it's really important that, that their grandchildren get good academic results. And I don't care. I literally don't care. I want. I just want my children to be happy. And I don't know if I've just listened to too many John Lennon records or whatever. But that's that's the the more I look at the data, that's all I care about. Um, and I, and at one point, I just want to make on that. I don't think happiness is a selfish thing. I don't. I don't think it's all about you being happy. I think the understanding about how you can make others happy are all part of the cycle. So I just want to make that point as well. I don't think it's a move away from not caring about other people into everyone being obsessed with themselves because of Instagram. So I have um, a friend who I, I like to call as the Minister of Air. 
who works in France and uh, spends a lot of time on this particular topic. And, and thanks to Thomas Kerting, his name, I understood that the pollution inside is distinctly worse than the pollution outside. And so that the I would be very curious to know whether it's the CO2 as we think of it by the cars in the street. But actually, yeah. there's a whole another level of contamination that happens inside, mostly thanks to human beings and the way we are and the dirt that we carry around. So that might be an interesting yeah. data point. Yeah, that. Oh well, if you're happy to connect us up, I'd love. I'd love that. I'll do that. So then, the other question I had with regard to this data: things like, are introverts or extroverts happier, or is there no other? data point like that that you know basically each to their own and it doesn't matter what type of characteristic or or how you are everyone has same access to happiness yeah they they do and it's very personal the the thing that and this is why you know again it's like that saying that the older you get the more you realize how little you know and the more I research into it, the more we uncover, the more I feel like the less I know of it. Mm-hmm. And the more I look at it, the more personal I think it is. So, I mean, we we hire in our own team lots of introverts, which are developers. Right. Um, so, and again, it goes back to the self-scoring thing is like, you're, you, might, you may score yourself a five and that may be happy for you. And my, I may score myself a nine. So... I don't think it is, but there is. It is worth pointing out the genetic point of it, which is that this isn't our research. The wider research shows that about fifty percent of your happiness is genetic. So, if we use uh, Winnie the Pooh as an example, and we use Tigger, um, and we use um, Eeyore as an example, those two, they may be fifty percent of their genes kind of make them that that way. And I, I am, I am broadly. I am simplifying the research, so I don't want to give it injustice. And then about twenty-five percent is down to how you how you feel, how you um, your own way that you look at the world. And then twenty-five percent is this stuff is the controlled around the environment. So the way we, we always look at it is there's half of it we can't control. There's twenty-five percent that your company can control by improving the environment, and there's twenty-five percent in your own head, um, which is where there's all these industries, isn't there, like self-help and we touched on Buddhism and religion and all this kind of stuff that I always think that's the area these these types of things are competing for in terms of in, in terms of that communication part. Well, it's brilliant to have some animals brought back into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of a little bit. I think uh, I did that. I did that subconsciously. I yeah, maybe. Uh, I, it just also made me think about tipping, how uh, different cultures have different ideas mm. of adding a bonus to the service they've received and generally speaking the indication is if you're happy with the service you tip some cultures just do not tip by that's it's included already in the bill the french the, the service compris in, yeah. the, in the bill so then they don't they're always considered stingy outside but in tipping cultures yeah. because they think it's already included yeah it, it seems to me the funny thing about tipping is that it's a it's a material way of demonstrating you know how happy you are but um mm. anyway that I, I feel like matt we could go on for many more hours on this topic wonderful uh, to to furrow down into the topic and as you say the more you find out about it the more that we don't know yeah and there's just what well, there is one point on that tipping point i just want to bring up really sure. quickly because it relates to how people are paid etc cetera, etc cetera, which is when you look across all our data one consistent is the one thing that makes 
employees happier and this is this is universal and it's for me it's just the most beautiful data story of all time which is the number one thing that makes people happy is a heartfelt thank you um and i used to just say it as a thank you but i had to word i, I had to add heartfelt into it because I work in a world of uh, digital people and then suddenly they try and automate thank yous mm. and make it cookie cutter. It has to be the genuine get to the Friday. Your team have absolutely smashed out and you go, thank you. Like how um, like we fa- we we thank Ollie for putting us in touch. Like I genuinely mean that to him. It's not yeah. like a cookie cutter thank you. And I think there's one thing the Americans have done is that they get service, don't they? But in many ways, they've, they've gone too far with it to make it cookie cutter. So, you know, like have a great day. Do you actually? Do they actually mean? Do they want me to have a great day and all that kind of stuff? But how I just you want doing? to make that point. I'm, I'm yeah, feeling yeah. shitty. <laughs> all right, <laughs> yeah. Matt. Listen, how can anyone follow what you're up to? Best way to understand more about the uh, index that you have to um, add me on LinkedIn. Um, I just, I'm just, I just record what I'm up to, where I'm going, what I'm doing. Um, Thehappinessindex.com um, is a great place. The blog, the resources, it's all there. But I just. I'm really bad at keeping secrets. So when I find stuff out, I tend to go on LinkedIn and record a little video and just tell everyone because I'm excited. I just, I want to share this stuff. Thanks for the scoop. Thanks for the interview. Great to be in touch. <laughs> and I look forward to having many, many years and longer conversations with you, Matt. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish... Here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. of a woman
Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 